0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. June 22nd, 2023, the Not That President Kennedy edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C., joined, of course, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School for New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. John Dickerson of CBS Prime. Time is in New York City. Hello, John.
1: Hello, David. Hello,
0: Emily. This week on The Gap Post, how dangerous is Robert Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign to the Biden campaign? How dangerous is it to the health of the nation? Then, did Hunter Biden get off easy or was he witch hunted? And then, state law gyrations about culture war issues. Well, and real issues. New York shields abortion providers who prescribe to women in states where abortion is banned and a judge in Arkansas, a federal judge, rejects the Arkansas law banning health care for trans children. We will conflate those two issues and discuss. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, next week, it's going to be an insane amount of news. We already know that the affirmative action ruling is going to come down between now and next week. And it's great that we have a live Gabfest coming up we're going to be live in Washington DC at sixth and I on Wednesday June 28th 730 p.m slate.com/ gabfest live we're gonna have a great conversation we'll have your questions
2: can I just say that unless you have a special line to the Supreme Court we don't know the affirmative action case will come down by next Wednesday night. Could
1: but don't they have a limited number of days? Isn't there some?
2: Sometimes they extend the term.
1: Oh, so they're gonna ask for the dogs? way hey, my homework. But it doesn't matter because it's not just the court. Something it's not will just happen. The court, man. Look, no, no, we know what's going to happen. On Thursday, they're going to announce the people who sprung Santos out of jail. That is going to make a lot of news and probably be really interesting. And then they're releasing the transcript of the IRS whistleblowers, seven hours of testimony on their Hunter Biden case after our conversation today, which will also probably be quite interesting.
0: See, we're going to have this kind of fight and debate, precision from Emily, philosophy from John. Whoa. Late breaking news, GapFest listeners. In the 30 seconds since we started that promo, we have learned that we have our special guest lined up. Governor Wes Moore of Maryland is going to be our guest. Wow. Yahoo. That's a live GabFest next week. He's so charismatic and interesting and the future probably of the Democratic Party, I might add.
2: One of the politicians I am the most eager to meet and talk to. I'm so pleased about this.
0: So come join us Wednesday, June 28th, 6th and I with Governor Wes Moore of Maryland. Slate.com slash GabFest live for tickets. Oh my God. I'm so excited about this. That's great. Awesome. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's a Conor Roy of the left, a megalomaniacal conspiracist who for decades has been a particularly pernicious force in American public health with his anti-vax nonsense, is running for president as a Democrat. He's a Democrat whose belief system is a mix of some sort of Republican position, some floppy progressivism, and a lot of conspiracies. But on first blush, but I think maybe only on first blush, he appears to be a legitimate threat to Joe Biden's reelection campaign, given that he's polling at nearly 20% among Democrats. But is he, though, John? Are those numbers meaningful?
1: Well, I don't think they're meaningful. He's not a legitimate threat. He is an interesting candidate, and there are lots of good parts of him. What good parts
0: of him are there?
1: Oh, I think the anti-elitism is generally... A good thing to have in the world. And to the extent that he plugs into that, I believe- Very me, look, credible. He's Kennedy. Very credible coming from look, a Kennedy. <laughs> no, I understand that. I get it. Believe me. Uh, and the, let's first dispense with his position in the polls. His name is Kennedy, first of all, and that means a lot in the world and the Democratic Party. Second of all, there are a class of voters we know about them who are sort of chaos voters. That's probably some of what's being picked up in the polls. Third, Joe Biden has some weakness in his party, and it is probably a proxy vote for some number of people who think, Uh, you know, Biden's old, we like the job he did, but I'm sort of unhappy with the fact that there aren't more choices. And it's a kind of easy, free kick. If it really came down to it, you know, there there are many, many, many super high hurdles, many of which are self-created by Robert Kennedy, who has a penchant for just making stuff up and a lot of other things that even if he didn't have a democratic establishment against him, for completely re- legitimate party reasons, people form parties and create rules and parties for reasons. You can't just like show up and go change the entire party unless you are compelling in the way Donald Trump was compelling to the Republican Party. But Robert K. Jr. doesn't have that. He's not that compelling to the Democratic Party in the same way.
2: I have basically ignored Robert Kennedy Jr. forever, because I know that he's against vaccines and a purveyor of misinformation. When I actually looked into the rest of his views, they seemed even worse than I realized. And I see... One tiny silver lining in this candidacy, which is that it is humbling and good for progressives to remember that they also have these kinds of flaws of wild conspiracies and, you know, the possibility of getting caught up and disseminating completely false facts like that is not just a problem of the right. That is like the tiny read of comfort I can find in this candidacy because mostly what it means is we're just going to listen to a lot of falsehoods spewing out from someone with a really famous last name.
0: Before we get too far, I do want to emphasize why he is so dangerous. He has spent his most of his career undermining public health, and it particularly – dangerous way which is that he was a major popularizer of the lie that vaccines cause autism
2: which is a lie
0: which is a lie and which discouraged lots of people from vaccinating their children and thus raised enormously the risk of their children and other children getting dangerous childhood diseases as herd immunity waned and then more recently he's been the most popular figure on the left giving cover to the lie that covid vaccines don't work and are dangerous and those are you know i there's a phrase i'm not going to use But I want to use about what happens when you tell people not to to engage in public health activities, which are incredibly beneficial for you and very broadly beneficial for the world as a whole.
1: And in addition to the systemic and constant spreading of lies and mistruth, he also mints fresh ones with great rapidity. Like, you know, he said that after the Affordable Care Act in 2010, Democrats were getting more money from pharma than Republicans. Not true. He said that gun ownership, the gun ownership in the U.S. was similar to that of Switzerland, not even close. And these are just two examples yeah. from Reid Epstein the New York Times, but, and that doesn't even get us to the whole like uh, Prozac causes mass shootings and Wi-Fi. I can't
0: remember what he. It gets through the blood-brain barrier. And- yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah. And and when he's and you know when he's asked to back any of this up he sort of dissolves into a fog.
0: Why do you guys think that Musk and various other people, rich people, troublemaking people, David Sachs who's a DeSantis backer, why are they pushing him? I mean, is it is it just they are trying to undermine Biden or is there some that actually believe this crap?
2: I think that it's that he's a spoiler and they're troublemakers and they think that it's more important to cause chaos than to care about all the complete bullshit he's speaking.
1: Well, Musk profits from chaos. I mean, the, the attention-grabbing public spectacle is something Twitter needs. DeSantis, as an evolved vaccine skeptic, he wasn't a vaccine skeptic at the beginning. He was basically held the consensus view that vaccines were good and people should get them and so forth. He did not mandate them in, in Florida, and he was against that, but he's now playing much more footsie with the anti-vaxxers than he used to be. And so to that extent, not only is he pot-stirring, anybody who supports DeSantis is pot-stirring in the Democratic Party, but they're also, in a way, reinforcing one of his central positions, which is that he was more wise than Donald Trump or anybody else in his approach to COVID-19. So I think there's there's a part of that too.
0: You play footsie with anti-vaxxer, you'll probably get rubella or tetanus or something.
1: Can we mention also, by the way, the Democratic Party has anti-vaxxers in it, but it's not a majority. Like if you were running, if you were searching for a position to hold in the Democratic Party to beat Joe Biden, being an anti-vaxxer would not be the road to success.
0: How do you think, John, the Biden campaign? I, I don't know. So there is this ambivalence that Democrats have about running an ancient person for a second term with a not terribly popular vice president in the wings. And- should Biden be glad that the challenge that's arising comes from this pernicious nutter, or should he wish there was no challenge, or should you know, should Democrats wish there was a credible other challenge, or is it better for the party that there be no challenge? I mean, wh- where if you're if you're a Democrat or if you're in the Biden campaign, do you stand on how you want this primary to unfold?
1: What a great question. This is why this goes in the category, the small category of why. I like his candidacy. I mean, when you think about his father's candidacy and the challenge to the Democratic establishment, to the extent that it was a challenge of a sitting president, was a super healthy thing for the Democratic Party. And you want to create space for legitimate challengers to incumbents. So I think that's that's healthy. I mean, you want to create the space for it, and then they have to actually fill that space. They have to, you know, go through the process to win voters by the rules of the party. You can't just make up the rules every time and have a functioning party. And I think that the Republican Party who had somebody rose to the top by essentially making up the rules and the party totally reorganizing itself around that person is paying some price for that. I mean, not just in losing the popular election in 2016 and 2020, and then having a bad result in 2022. But you see a lot of the contortions that members of the party are having to go through to defend somebody who they privately say is indefensible. But it's a good thing to have a route to this. And in terms of what does Joe Biden want? I think Joe Biden wants many things that he probably can't fix, but his age being one of them, and there's just nothing you can do about that.
0: So one of the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. controversies of the week was that he was appearing on the Joe Rogan podcast. And they're sort of triggered this billionaire's game of trying to provoke actual virologists to come and debate him so peter hotez i think is how you say his name last last name virologist in texas there there there's this attempt to goad this virologist to come on the rogan podcast to to debate kennedy so should people come and debate kennedy about vaccines or not
2: I mean, yeah, probably someone should. The thing that's hard about those debates in real time is that it's really easy to muck them up by going off on trails and making all kinds of claims that sound like they have real statistics or real scientific evidence attached to them, and they really don't. And it can be very hard to control in the moment how it all goes. It's a difference between doing it, you know, orally and in a more like controlled written venue. But I still think it's probably worth trying to just knock some of the nonsense down.
1: I don't know. I think there's just a lot of energy spent on going down roads that ultimately, like I went back down the rabbit hole again of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s theories about the 2004 voting fraud, which by the way, there's an old Farhad Manju piece in Salon debunking him. And it it inhabits a lot of the current madness he's unleashed, which is making emphatic claims that sound right in the moment, but that are out of context and totally allied damning facts. And he's been at it for, for a while. And Farhad's piece holds up pretty well from 2006. The venue in which these combat combat is taking place, as you say, is just not sufficient to the elevation of learning.
0: There's a, yeah, I just don't see how a debate succeeds. I mean, the, I think the, what we've learned in the past decade is that the truth and lies are not at odds necessarily it's what it is is it's it's sort of this chaff like the world of chaff just confuses people so much that you can't even if the truth is out there people are so perplexed by the amount of information and so skeptical of all information that you just can't win in a direct information battle
2: depressing but possible they could do it in writing they could ask him to write things down and rebut it that way and then you can actually think about it and have things like footnotes and sources you're still skeptical
0: I don't know. Yeah, no one I would mean, read it.
2: I think
1: also, if you're a leader, you have some obligation to, I mean, obviously, this hasn't been true for populists who say any old damn thing and have lots of success, but I was thinking about something that that RFK Jr. said about Biden, and he said, I think the Democratic Party has become the party of war. Um, Biden, he said, has always been in favor of a ev- very bellicose, pugnacious, and aggressive foreign policy. But <laughs> if you'll just remember for a second, first of all, with respect to Ukraine, it was Russia that invaded Ukraine and it is not an insane response for an American president to want to defend the principles of democracy and sovereignty that are under threat in Ukraine. You may disagree with it, but if your disagreement is based on the idea that defending an invaded nation makes you a warmonger, that's outside the realm of what, you know, of useful conversation if you want to be a leader of a country. The second thing is, Before Joe Biden was being blamed for whatever he's being blamed for now, he was being blamed for withdrawing from Afghanistan. He was too much of a peacenik. His opposition to Afghanistan is well recorded within uh, the Obama administration. So again, you can go after Biden on many things, but you have to be at least within the ballpark. Now, having said that, he did support the Iraq war, but that's some number of years ago. And again, there's a little more subtlety to that than the way in which this is being presented.
0: I would like to finish this by making the small but critical point that I think the Kennedy's teeth are perhaps the most important single physical feature in American political history. That this these distinctive teeth have allowed otherwise totally unqualified or marginally qualified people to flash their Kendiness and win sympathy and popularity and fame and celebrity and success that they do not deserve. If only they had regular teeth. And if only you couldn't immediately identify a Kennedy by their teeth, these people would have washed out 40 years ago.
2: He does have white teeth. It's true. It's not
0: just the whiteness. It's like there's, a, you see, Prominence. the Kendi teeth are super distinctive and they all have it. It's like clearly some kind of crazy dominant gene.
1: But I mean, there's there's also an ethic in the family of of public service and not that everybody in the family it's has just followed just the teeth, that.
0: John. It's just okay. the teeth and Chappaquiddick. That's all there is. <laughs> Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the Gabfest. We've got a doozy for you this week. We're going to talk about the conservative boycott of Bud Light, why it succeeded, and what does it tell us about boycotts. We're going to talk about it with Jim Surawicki. who wrote a brilliant article about it, and great conversation. Go to slate.com/gabfest plus to become a member today. Slate.com/gabfest plus. You get so much else with that membership too. This episode of the Gabfest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. That's SAP Business AI. Hunter Biden will, I'm not sure of the timing of all this, but it sounds like he will plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes and get two years of probation, will also accept a kind of punishment for a crime involving lying on some gun paperwork. And this is all part of a deal worked out with a U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, who was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who's been left in place in Delaware during the Biden administration, apparently to avoid the appearance that the Biden Justice Department is interfering in the case, just even to avoid the appearance of democratic interference, Weiss has been left in place to continue this Biden, Hunter Biden investigation. So Hunter Biden is clearly like a damaged, damaged person, cocaine addict, thrown out of the military, traded on his family name while doing deals with shady people in Europe and Asia. Emily, is this pursuit of him a fair pursuit aimed at you know rooting out corruption that could have affected president biden or is it a witch hunt and is the is the punishment that's happening fair or or punishment that no one else would have ever gotten
2: yeah i mean i think that it is fair to investigate these allegations of influence peddling in ukraine right like If that was a real thing that, you know, Hunter Biden traded on his name in a way that involved President Biden, that led to any actual consequences with the U.S. forcing out Ukrainian officials to benefit this gas company called Burisma, then, yes, federal prosecutors should look into that. I don't think we have any evidence that, in fact, whatever trading on his name Hunter Biden was doing actually had those results. On the other hand, we have this IRS whistleblower who John referred to earlier who's about to show up and like maybe something will come of that. Although that sounds like it has to do with internal IRS. Were they protecting or not protecting his tax records? What this guilty plea is about are minor charges that would not normally be charged on their own like this because he was late in paying back his taxes, but he paid them back in in the end. And so usually prosecutors would not, I think, go after that on its own. That's also true, according to experts about this gun charge. He's accused of lying because he had a drug addiction when he got this handgun permit. Again, not something that normally is a standalone offense. And this is just a prosecutorial call about discretion, right? These are crimes. You can charge them. It's just do you normally take the large firepower of the federal government and put it behind this kind of prosecution. I think in this case, it was really important to have David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, appointed by former President Trump finish out the investigation with as much independence as the Justice Department can give him and to have some kind of consequences for Hunter Biden because he's the president's son. But it's it, it's like it started out, I, as far as I can tell, legitimately, but then it winds up having penalties that probably he wouldn't be facing if he weren't Biden's kid.
1: Although there are former DOJ officials who are saying, Oh, no, the regular person would, you know, if this was Joe Smith, they'd get a harder penalty. I think, don't we really not know until we see the document in front of the judge that outlines the terms of the deal? And that'll, I guess, come out in July that basically explains why this deal and why this set of arrangements.
2: Yeah. I mean, that'll definitely be useful information. I mean, to me, the basic thing is like, is it okay that he's getting probation and not going to prison, right? That's the thing people care about. Is that the slap on the wrist that Republicans are charging? And it looks to me like based on the crimes that have actually been indicted, that that is in line with the kind of penalty other defendants might receive from what I've read from other experts. But yeah, the underlying facts are going to matter a lot. And given how this all started out in the huge storm cloud, I can understand why for some people, it seems like just a total nothing burger.
1: And the burger may not be cooked yet, which is something that's weird. So the Bi- the Biden lawyer says, we you know, our understanding is we're done. But- then Weiss seems to say, no, it's still ongoing. And presumably the solution to that puzzle is what's still ongoing is the investigation into the influence peddling, not only with Burisma, but the the China CEFC deal or the China Energy Company deal, which is another tangle and shows bad judgment. And we can talk about that, but that presumably is what's where the state of play
2: is? Yeah, there's this weird sort of appendix to Weiss's statement that said an investigation is still pending. And then you wonder why under Biden's lawyers would have him pleading guilty if this isn't wrapping things up.
0: It will never, ever be done. I mean, there was an interesting piece on Thursday morning in either the Times or the Post from someone who clearly had some familiarity with Joe Biden and was saying that, you know, for understandable reasons, Joe Biden is very sensitive about this. He's very protective of his son. And Hunter, I mean, Joe Biden's had this incredible family tragedy and then lost, more recently lost Beau Biden, his older son who had a less troubled life than less troubled professional life than Hunter. And that Joe Biden has, just doesn't, he wants to be very protective of Hunter Biden and doesn't want to hear the bad stuff about him. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's any evidence that Joe Biden was influenced by Hunter Biden. They're, they've been the Republicans are desperate to find evidence that Joe Biden was, you know, doing deals with this or that shady person because of Hunter Biden. But it it does feel like I don't know that Joe Biden may be overprotective of this child who's made so many bad decisions and caused so much sorrow in his own life.
2: I mean, but can't oh man? It's such a core part of one's identity as a parent. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I just yeah. like it's this the most. Visceral instinct to protect your super vulnerable kid, who's like seems to be trying hard to get his life back together. I mean, I don't know. I just, do, I have to say, I do find that very sympathetic. Oof.
1: And yet, the problem it raises is that on some of these things, like the deal with Burisma and the Chinese energy company, Hunter Biden didn't have any relevant expertise, and so it doesn't pass the laugh test to think that he was hired for his. Unique insight into these things. He was hired because of what his name was. That doesn't, that happens with lots of other famous people and their relatives. And in fact, Hunter Biden, to be fair, said he showed a lack in judgment of joining Burisma. But I think that's all legitimate conversation and legitimate to be brought up, and certainly in the context of politics. So to say that there's nothing to see there. Goes too far, even if it's in the service of exactly the human response that you're talking about,
0: John. To continue with that, I mean, I, one of the things that I keep getting tripped up by is the "what here, which is like, which I really try not to be a "what But when you think about that, Hunter Biden is is facing a guilty plea for tax evasion, whereas you have the level of tax criminality demonstrated by Donald Trump and his family is extraordinary, getting away with it, massive scale of of tax crimes, the influence peddling that the hunter biden was doing was on the scale of kind of a million here a million there whereas you have jared kushner getting a couple of it, billion it wasn't the dollars trump
1: hotel it wasn't the trump hotel while trump is president i mean yeah. yes
0: i mean you know the trump family are getting money from some of the shadiest people in the world at this you know thousandfold scale And so how do we how do we deal with this? What about is I mean, it's like, you know, the the Trump fam, no one, Jared Kushner isn't in prison. And I'm not saying he's committed a crime, but the answer is you apply the same standard to both.
1: That's the way you engage with it. So you say it's not good to have the son of a, a likely presidential candidate or a former vice president or a powerful person in American government getting jobs that are clearly based on his name and influence that he might have that's not a good thing to have. And you can say that's not a good thing to have. And it's not good for the president of the United States to benefit from a hotel that's right next to the White House, which tends to book in people who have business before the president. It's not good for his son in law to get deals that are clearly smoothed by access he had and relationships he has as a result of what his father in law does and on and on and on down the line. You can hold both of those things together if you're going to try to apply a standard to your own thinking then then you have to look at those who are pursuing Hunter Biden and Joe Biden with such vigor and the Biden I think the the root of the Biden um, is you know this China deal this uh, there's a guy named James I think it's Gilliar who said you know th- this is the Hunter Biden laptop email which talks about 10% for the big guy which is the which has been the kind of holy grail of these this effort to connect Joe Biden to Hunter Biden's activities. They have not been able to do that so far, and it's been some many number of years. And you had basically the power of the presidency in terms of President Trump getting Gi- Rudy Giuliani to go look for this information. there's this search has been on for a while, and it's not been. It's not been found, but that's the, that's the extent to which Joe Biden has been, I think, most closely connected without any proof other than this email. But imagine if one applied the energy and strength of passion about this email from Hunter Biden's laptop to the activities during the Trump years. How would the behavior be different? Obviously, it would be significantly different. Also, by the way, we should also note Democrats would be going you know, hog wild if Don Jr. was caught for the same thing.
0: Emily, there's so much drama, so much stuff happening around hot button issues at the state level. And we're going to focus on two states, New York and Arkansas, which had incredibly interesting things happen in the Bazelon wheelhouse. So start with New York. What happened in New York this week?
2: In New York this week, the state assembly joined the state senate in passing a bill that would allow abortion providers in New York to prescribe and send abortion pills across lines into states with abortion bans. And what New York is saying is that it will not put any of its state power behind helping a state with a ban enforce its laws that would Normally, allow that state to go after this abortion provider, right? So, you don't usually let a doctor or nurse or midwife in one state decide to do something that is against the health laws of another state. But that's exactly what these New York providers are going to be doing. And, you know, to just put a sort of dramatic point on this, in Texas, it's a felony and it's arguably murder to provide an abortion. And these doctors, and some of them have come forward publicly, they are going to be sending abortion pills into Texas. That is protected healthcare activity in New York. And so if Texas issues an arrest warrant, for one of these doctors, New York is going to refuse to enforce it. If Texas allows people to sue the doctors, New York is going to try not to let its courts be used to you know, enforce subpoenas or any other court orders. And if someone goes after the medical license of one of these doctors or the malpractice insurance, New York is going to, again, try to stand in the way. And all of that is like really dramatic. It's just not how we normally have cooperation among the states.
0: Yeah. So how is this going to get worked out i was like where what are the analogs to this and i'm I, I know there's some fugitive slave law analog but i don't even know if it's right and there's going to be litigation it does seem i mean just on its face obviously i'm very sympathetic to the people who want to help provide abortion to people in texas who aren't able to get it but it does seem really problematic for doctors in one state to be reaching into another state committing a crime in that state using telemedicine, and. It does seem different than welcoming someone who travels to you, to your state, to get to medicine. We should be really worried about the precedent here, I would think.
2: Well, I don't know. It's different. I should also say New York isn't the first state. There are actually like a handful now. Massachusetts was first last summer. It's now Massachusetts, Colorado, Washington State, and Vermont. What's important about New York is that doctors are coming forward publicly, and there seem to be more of them. You know, look. On the one hand, like, yes, you do kind of have to go back to the Civil War era to look for the idea of having such a chasm of policy disputes between and among states that states were just absolutely obstructing each other in enforcing laws instead of cooperating. On the other hand, you can think of this as a form of kind of state aided civil disobedience, where these doctors, like other you know radicals throughout time, think that this healthcare provision is really important. There are thousands of abortion pills getting shipped into the red states. That's already happening. And for U.S. doctors to try to provide those prescriptions, it's definitely a, a different step. It allows for more telehealth, as opposed to using middlemen providers who don't have any kind of medical degree and are getting around the laws against importing drugs in other clandestine ways. It is going to be really interesting to see what happens. It's possible that there'll be civil lawsuits against these doctors, and that's the trickiest part constitutionally for this fight among the states because of the full faith and credit clause in the constitution. It's also possible there'll be a prosecution, but, you know, that would also mean that one of these states or a prosecutor in them would actually have evidence that the doctor mailed to a patient in their jurisdiction, right? Which, like, entails some kind of surveillance, either looking at people's web history or opening their mail or someone informs on them. And then you have to think about, like, do you want to be the person who is trying to arrest the doctor in New York who's going to stay in New York? I mean, that's what the providers are ta- are talking about. Like, they're not going to go show up in Texas. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's a political as well as a legal battle.
1: Emily, is there anything Texas could do in a low-key way and not using the court system to basically say, okay, well, New York, if you're going to do this, we're going to do this? And, and not respect some important vital interest that New York cares about, like some other interest New York has, like there's a fugitive in Texas wanted by New York law. And New York's just like, ah, no, now I mean, Texas like now, nah, we're well, sorry, we're not going to go chase him down or whatever. I mean, in other words, take it totally out of the medical. Is there some other value that that Texas could could monkey with?
2: Well, so actually the Constitution has an extradition clause. And if you actually flee physically after you committed a crime, then the state you fled to has to return you. So no is the answer to that. I think the you know, there are examples where like Texas could try to unleash, for example, like conversion therapy of gay and trans people into New York and New York would really not like that. That would be a public policy, like profound difference that New York would want to stop. I don't know how likely or common that would be. Someone would have to also, like, there has to be uptake on that. I mean, there's a huge demand for abortion bills in states with abortion restrictions. I'm not sure there's much of a demand. I hope there isn't a demand for conversion therapy, which has been roundly debunked in New York. Yeah. So in some ways, it does seem like New York has the kind of upper hand here in terms of what it can threaten.
0: I you know I know this is an unfashionable position probably with our listeners I just am super worried about this as a precedent. I do not think it is okay. Like there there are laws about where you can practice medicine for a reason. I mean Texas is saying you cannot practice this form of medicine in our state. Now, you can object to it, but like the history of the United States is like states have a wide latitude in how they regulate what is a crime and how professionals behave. And for New York to interfere in that and to allow its professionals to go and effectively meddle in this other state for a higher good is a really, really dangerous precedent. And it undermines the kind of compact that holds the states together, which is that we respect each other's state laws so that you can do something differently in your state and I can do something differently in my state. And we are going to respect that even if we don't necessarily like it, but we're going to respect it. And when you are crossing into the border when you're crossing over the border electronically it feels like you're you are doing something that is quite different than what the constitution typically allows and i just don't see how the supreme court is going to let this stand i don't see how this i don't see how this survives
2: yeah, I mean, we'll see. It'll be it's not totally clear like how the Supreme Court will stop it, but like surely someone's going to try. So, you're absolutely right that it's going to be litigated and it'll be really interesting. And you're also right that it undermines the compact among the states. I mean, I think it's culturally and politically it's part of this larger battle we're seeing right now where states have really polarized into red and blue. I mean, not every single one of them, but more and more and we're seeing policy making that has this like really strong tendency in one place that you don't see in another. One place thinks that something is like absolutely morally correct and the only way to do do it. And if you break the law, you should go to prison for a long time. And another state thinks that abortion is human right and wants to help the people who can't receive it in the first kind of state. And that's just a really Dramatic division. I don't mean to totally, you know, catastrophize, but it is the kind of moral fight that led to the Civil War. And so, in terms of like stability and everyone getting along, like this is a threat to that. You can also argue to kind of take some of the drama out that this is a, a way in which abortion is an exception that, you know, perhaps we could allow for. There are a lot of ways in which. Pro-choice people have accused abortion opponents of abortion exceptionalism in the past, like loading on all these regulations for abortion clinics that don't seem medically necessary or medically indicated. And this is a form of abortion exceptionalism that abortion access advocates are asking for. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output, bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump? the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning.
0: Let's change topics and head to Arkansas, where a federal judge permanently enjoined the state law that banned gender-affirming care for minors. It was one of the first laws in the country. There have now been, I think, 20 states, all red states, that have passed similar laws. So on what grounds did this judge say this law was unconstitutional?
2: Well, the judge said this was a form of sex discrimination and discrimination against transgender people on the basis of their identity. And he also added the First Amendment rights of doctors because Arkansas is telling them they can't refer patients to other providers. So there's like the equal protection clause, the due process clause, and then the first amendment at issue here.
0: And this is one of the first laws and this ferocious and often quite mean legislation across the country aimed at stopping treatment of trans children. And obviously Emily, you've written a ton about this. They are citing the people who are pushing these laws are citing European restrictions, new European restrictions on how this care is provided and I wonder like what is the difference between what is happening in Europe, what conservative states are doing and what liberal states are doing. Like there are three different models and and what Europe is doing is not what conservative states are doing, but it's also not what liberal states are doing.
2: Yeah, I mean that's right. I think the Europeans are looking at the evidence and getting concerned about whether it Really justifies a kind of all or nothing approach to care. So, one of the psychiatrists I wrote about last year, Scott Leibowitz, who treats lots of LGBT youth in Ohio. He just wrote a piece for Psychiatric Times where he was like, Look, when is it with medical care, especially for kids, that we only see kind of these all or nothing polls? And that's kind of what's happening right now in the US. And the Europeans are striving for some kind of middle ground. So, for example, the British just closed their gender identity clinic for kids. And they said, We're still going to allow for access to medical treatments, meaning puberty blockers and hormones, but we're going to do it on a more cautious case by case basis. And we're going to roll everybody in. Research study. And the Swedes and the Finns, and I think the Norwegians have made similar moves lately. That is really different from banning this care altogether, right? Because banning the care takes it away from kids who really need it. It's also important to think about Arkansas in particular. So for me, the most compelling facts that Judge Moody, the district court judge in this case, cited is that this Arkansas clinic, there's one clinic in Arkansas. Over the course of its existence, it's treated around 300 Teenagers, there are four kids on puberty blockers. Four, that's it, because most of the kids come to the clinic when they're adolescents and puberty blockers aren't really relevant for them. And the average amount of time that people wait before from the time they show up at the clinic to getting hormone therapy is 10 and a half months, and their average age is 16. So this is a clinic that, by all reports, from everything I've ever heard about, is operating really cautiously, kind of in this more European-like zone of how you actually provide the care, and maybe with more access than Europe provides, and maybe that more access is good, especially in a red state where you have to figure out the kids who are showing up at this clinic are battling a lot of stigma to get there, right? They're not in a place where, like, this is an easy choice to make. And that's not a good thing, but I think it can weigh in favor of thinking about like the caution this clinic is exercising. The other thing that's really clear about the Arkansas case is that the state did a terrible job of putting experts together. I mean, these experts are not high quality. Only one of the four of them had actually ever treated any trans teenagers. So the, there is a bad record for the conservative position in this case, and it's going to be interesting to see how that affects what happens in front of the court of appeals and And eventually, the Supreme Court is going to hear a challenge to one of these bans or one or more of these bans. And I mean, frankly, if I was a conservative judge looking at this, I would want a better record than what Arkansas assembled in this case. I guess the one thing I just want to emphasize... You know, from all the reporting I've done on this, I have not seen any credible evidence for banning medical treatment for transgender minors.
0: And for criminalizing.
2: And for criminalizing it. All of these like punitive ways of thinking about this just seem to me like they are about politics, not medicine.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a delicious cocktail, a mezcal of some sort, Emily Bazelon, what are you gonna be chattering about?
2: I'm pretty interested in this story about Justice Alito and this fancy, expensive private jet that he took to Alaska and his insistence that he did nothing wrong. So ProPublica was about to report on this luxury fishing trip that he took, called Alito, asked for comment. He went on the offense and talked instead to the Wall Street Journal and the opinion pages about how there was nothing to see here. Alito was saying that he didn't really know this incredibly wealthy hedge fund manager and Republican donor, Paul Singer, and that <laughs> my favorite was that the seat on the plane would have gone empty anyway, so it wasn't really worth any money. And finally, he said he didn't know that Singer was part of this case that came before the Supreme Court in which Alito voted on the side of Singer's businesses and obviously didn't recuse himself. So, you know, there's some problems with this offense of Justice Alito's. One of them is that it was widely reported at the time that Paul Singer was part of this case. It was in the New York Times. It was in Forbes, as Adam Liptek is pointing out in the Times in his coverage of this. And the second is that, you know, apparently Alito was at a number of events with Paul Singer. There just is this kind of chumminess here that he seems to be denying. And when you have that kind of chumminess and then you're voting on a case that directly implicates someone's financial interests, like that seems like a pretty textbook case for refusal for that seems like a pretty textbook case for recusal. Alito's insisting there's nothing to see here. And, you know, obviously, as we've talked about before, there's this wider problem for the court in terms of its reputation and integrity. And I wonder if the biggest implication of this story is that whatever work Chief Justice Roberts is trying to do this summer to get the court to sign on to its own ethical guidelines, and you have to imagine he's trying to do something to shore up the court's reputation, now he has Alito probably, you know, feeling attacked and defensive as along with Justice Thomas.
1: Right, because if you're Roberts and... The decisions the court comes to encourage people to think that the court doesn't look or that some members of the court don't look at the law or the facts and just do whatever they want. You don't want lots of public examples of members of the court doing whatever they want, even if it's outside of the law, because it, it underscores that larger view. Exactly,
2: And any taint of corruption is just bad for an institution that has your name on it.
0: What's your chatter, John?
1: My chatter is a little weird, but stick with me. So on the 21st of June in 1788, New Hampshire was the ninth state to ratify the constitution thereby crossing the threshold and making it the law of the land and it was a foot race in fact the secretary of the constitutional convention in the in june in new hampshire wrote down 1 p.m because they wanted to make sure that if virginia ratified at the same time new hampshire could claim that it was the keystone in the federal arch that it had gotten there first before virginia but what amused me about this story was the cleverness of the federalists in new hampshire they had met in february and thought it was a slam dunk Basically, they were going to win and ratify the constitution and off they would go. And in fact, the anti-federalists who tended to be from the rural areas, the federalists were more from the coasts aligned with the merchants and the bankers. The anti-federalists were totally about to basically swamp this new constitution. And the point here is he who makes the rules wins the game. And it's why the Rules Committee in the House is often a very interesting place to look at things before legislation ever comes to the floor. So what the Federalists did was they said, okay, shoot, we're about to potentially lose here in February. So we're going to make up some quick rules. And the rules are, one, when you vote on adjournment of our group here, your name won't be attached to the vote. Thereby, they were trying to create a door, an exit for any delegate who'd come from a portion of New Hampshire where they had been sent there explicitly to vote down the constitution. But if their vote was not associated with an adjournment, basically the plan was if we look like we're going to lose, we're going to adjourn, regroup, and hold this convention later. So they stripped all names from the voting. So basically if you came from an area that wanted to swamp the constitution, you could still vote for adjournment, allow it to live, but you wouldn't get blamed for it. The second thing is once you vote to adjourn, no other motion can be voted on. You cannot talk about anything else. And the third thing is you couldn't take up a vote again on, on any other motion unless the number of delegates present was the same as on the initial adjournment vote. So essentially, if you're a Federalist and you want to adjourn to, to keep this thing alive, you basically vote and then run out of the room because no other vote can take place unless the number of people is the same as took place on the adjournment vote. This succeeded. They, they ran away. They regrouped. They met again in June where they had gotten their forces in order and passed the constitution, thereby making it the law of the land.
0: Okay. My chatter is, well, briefly, my nut theory. Well, I have two nut theories. One, everything is a fruit and nothing is a nut. So everything that you think is a nut is actually a fruit. And there are the only actual nut, I think, is a hazelnut. Biologically, like a walnut, a cashew, an almond, they're all fruits. But that's not my theory. My theory actually has to do with if you're eating a cashew, so, what is the replacement value of a whole cashew versus a replacement value of half a cashew? What is a whole cashew worth compared to a half cashew? How many how many half cashews do you want to replace? Oh, the whole I'm cas- so yes. with you.
2: I only yes. like whole cashews.
0: Yes, yeah. Literally, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it I takes actually about don't like eat the half six half six half cashew and pe- also true of peanuts. The whole peanut is worth way more than twice as much as half a peanut.
2: Is there a nut it's not true of? I guess there. The, I don't really eat that many nuts. The walnuts. Walnuts. walnut. Yes, i is true,
0: and there's some like the Brazil nut. You don't even want. I don't eat that. So it and macadamia
2: you know, Brazil, nuts, I hate. The,
1: the Brazil nut is the parsley of nuts.
0: Yeah, but the ca- the the incredible extra value of the whole cashew is distinctive. The whole cashew is worth more than any other nut in the world. do
2: you? this is true though about a lot of food that crumbs like little pieces like i feel this way about baked goods too that little pieces of baked goods are worthless and i just don't want to eat them
0: huh except at the very end if you have a like if you get a, a bag of cookies like there's a salty oat cookie that's sold at my favorite place Teaism, and the crumbs break off in the bag and at the end if you've eaten all the cookies and then there's just kind of a uh, funnel uh, the sedimentary layer of of crumbs and you yeah you've you funnel them into your mouth and it's quite that's quite satisfying right like doritos dust doritos exactly Ugh, like Dorito, exactly
2: i think doritos should be banned that's one thing that i think should be banned are doritos
0: oh my god i actually think that when you think about like if some famous chef prepared a thing for you and they present it to you and you were like, that's incredible. I think a Dorito. if you'd never had a Dorito before and Ugh, you went to the fanciest so restaurant awful. in the world, you went to the fanciest restaurant in the world and they served you like six Doritos with yes. a small, you would be like, this is incredible. The amount of flavor packed into this, the 100%. amount of crunch packed into this is amazing. I do I think the them. Dorito is one of the most remarkable foods ever created and it's it is as good as like the most fancy meal you've ever thought of. But just because but I, it's trash, it's known as trash food, you don't think- No,
2: it's way. gross. I It's the only kind of junk food that I literally find completely unappealing.
1: Listen, I want you to understand something very important though about Doritos, which is that Doritos are in the same class as the Stouffer's microwave French bread pizza, which is that the pace with which you eat them- Causes a real possible health risk, which is if you eat Doritos too fast, those pointy corners can really, I mean, they can take out a whole, like, marble sized piece of your roof of your mouth. So, those two things should come with some sort of warning. All
0: right. Listeners, you also have great chatters, maybe not as great as this one, maybe not as great as that incredible discussion of all snack foods. Uh, But please tweet them to us at slate gabfest or Email them to us at com. even better. And our listener chatter this week comes from Ruthie Cohorn-Rosenberg.
2: Hi, this is
1: Ruthie Cohorn-Rosenberg in Seattle, Washington. At the most recent Smith College commencement, commencement speaker Reshma Saujani, founder of Girls Who Code and many, many other endeavors, gave an amazing speech totally blowing up the idea of imposter syndrome. She used a 19th century syndrome later debunked to get us to rethink what is actually happening with imposter syndrome. The 19th century syndrome called bicycle face suddenly popped up as a female disorder when women started riding bicycles. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you.
0: That's our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jared Downing today, usually Shayna Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan, always Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at @slategabfest, And please come to our live show on Wednesday, June 28th, here in Washington, D.C., with Governor Wes Moore of Maryland. Get tickets at slate.com slash live. For Emily bazlon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Bud Light sales plummeted, plummeted after various conservatives announced a boycott following Bud Light's collaboration with Dylan Mulvaney, a trans woman influencer. They went down about 20% immediately. They've stayed down about 25% for the year. Jim Surawiki. Wrote a really interesting article for The Atlantic about why this boycott is working. Hello, Jim. Welcome to Slate Plus on the GabFest. Thanks for having me on. So, what are the characteristics of a company that can be harmed by a boycott versus a company or a brand that cannot be harmed by a boycott? Why did this work?
1: Well, so let me preface this by saying that I do think in the piece I wrote, I compared what happened to the Ice Bucket Challenge, which, if you remember, was this. A uh, viral fad on social media in like 2014, when when people sort of dumped ice over their
0: heads in order to raise money for for ALS um, and to other kind of social media fads. So there there is something about this dynamic that
1: is maybe hard to 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 pinpoint or to capture. So it's possible that
0: you know at a different time, the boy. That was just a snippet again. from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today.